Welcome to Iris Radio, an informative exploration of cutting-edge technology in the neurocritical care space. And now, here's your host, John Unser. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. Today, we'll be talking with neurointensivist Dr. Farooq Chaudhry about his experience in treating intraventricular hemorrhage. To those of you that are listening that do not have a medical background, first want to break down what is an actual stroke, and that will help with this conversation in intraventricular hemorrhage. So strokes can be broken down into two basic categories, one being ischemic stroke and the other one hemorrhagic. Ischemic stroke or obstructions that disrupt blood flow to the brain account for approximately 85% of all strokes. And the second category is hemorrhagic strokes. Hemorrhagic strokes account for 15% of all strokes that occur. The reason why they occur is a weakened vessel ruptures and bleeds into the brain. While these hemorrhagic bleeds occur less frequently, they do have a higher morbidity and mortality, resulting in approximately 40% of all stroke deaths. To officially introduce our guest, Dr. Farooq Chaudhry. Dr. Chaudhry is an assistant professor at the University of Indiana and Director of Neurocritical Care at Community Health System in Munster, Indiana. Dr. Chaudhry, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure. So now that we've taken a few minutes to broadly define what a hemorrhagic stroke is, if you could please take a few minutes to really expand upon that a little bit more and help us understand how that is related to an intraventricular hemorrhage. So as you mentioned, John, uh, intracerebral hemorrhage or hemorrhagic stroke per se, are they carry a much higher case fatality as compared to ischemic stroke, which equally are devastating depending on the size of stroke and the location of stroke. There is a number of uh, concern with hemorrhagic strokes, particularly the factors that would result into a higher case fatality rate. One of the factors, clinical factors, as well as radiographic factors that we always look at is extension of intracranial hemorrhage or intracerebral hemorrhage into the ventricular space which is directly uh, related to a higher case fatality as well as carries higher morbidity. The ICH uh, or the hemorrhagic stroke, which has traditionally been considered a disease of the elderly, uh, there's recent uh, data that's published, which is very interesting to see, uh, looking at a very large retrospective cohort, which actually defined that the incidence of intracerebral hemorrhage was about 5.9 in less than 54 years of age, and it jumps about 37.2 in the age group of 55 to 74. And obviously, as we grow older, the case per 100,000 population is much higher. But it's a pretty significant number in that middle age group as well. And that's a group where we have to be even more uh, aggressive in our treatment plan. Now, coming back to the, the intraventricular portion of that, you can roughly see about 40% of these intracerebral hemorrhages having some extension into the ventricles, which is then called the intraventricular hemorrhage. In addition to that, there are two other types of uh, hemorrhages that can occur in, in, in a non-traumatic setting. Patients who have primary intraventricular hemorrhage without any intracerebral hemorrhage component, that's not very commonly seen, but it is a difficult disease to manage. And then there could be uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages, which are non-traumatic, secondary to most likely aneurysms or AVMs, where there can be a direct extension into the intraventricular space as well, which also, again, increases the complications, increases the case fatality, increases the morbidity of these patients. Just strictly talking from the hemorrhagic stroke standpoint, like I said, about 40% of the intracerebral hemorrhages can extend into the intraventricular space. And because of that, there is, a, there is a number of factors that are involved in making this a much worse bleed. For example, 
the secondary tissue injury process, which is related to the intraventricular bleeding because of inflammation, because of cerebral edema, because of cell death, because of direct extension into the ventricular space, and also interruption of cerebrospinal blood flow, which then translates sometimes into needing shunts, which are permanent, like a ventriculoperitoneal shunts, et cetera, which then carry their own morbidity, et cetera, which makes this disease all the more difficult to take care of. So with that, how do you go about treating this type of intraventricular hemorrhage? Okay, John, so this is a this is a technology that we've been using for decades now. When we think that the patients need a drainage, because intraventricular hemorrhage, the first and foremost here is the interruption of cerebrospinal pathways and the inability of the CSF to reabsorb, which then creates a pressure within the ventricular system, which then keeps growing larger and causing more injury. And the, the simple solution to that, obviously, you know, first started treatment on that was draining it to the outside environment, which is done in the form of a putting a drain directly into the ventricular space and then uh, let it drain based on either the pressure gradient difference or based on gravity uh, difference uh, to drain to the outside world. Typically, the management hasn't changed much over many, many years since the technology of external ventricular drain was developed. We have been uh, using this method where we allow passive drainage of the blood from the ventricles, which sometimes, uh, in depending on how big the clot burden is, how aggressive uh, the, the ICPs are, uh, it could take sometimes days, sometimes weeks. And that's the mainstay of the therapy uh, at the moment. Recently, there has been a lot of uh, interest starting in about a decade ago of looking at animal models where there was observation made that evacuating that hematoma from the ventricular space actually result in improved outcomes uh, in the animal models, which then translated into some clinical trials where we were using the same conventional EVD setup, but now instead of just passively observing the passing of clot, now you're injecting the alteplase or clot buster medication uh, recombinant TPA into the ventricular space, clapping the EVD and let that medicine sit there for a little bit, then opening the, uh, the EVD up again to allow this clot that is forming in the ventricle to hemolyze and then uh, start draining again. Uh, this obviously was studied in a randomized control fashion in the form of clear IVH trial, which concluded by saying that, uh, yes, it does promote the clearing of the ventricle, but overall clinically did not make much difference. Since then, it has been practiced a lot of time. It's just a judgment call, a lot of time, a lot of clinical factors and environmental factors involved, the experience of the institution as well where you can either drain them passively like traditional way, or you can couple it with the combination of intraventricular TPA injections uh, using the clear IVH protocol to, to hasten the, the clearance of the ventricle. So these are the two main therapies that we've been using. And what are some of the complications that are associated with these treatments? There's obviously a lot of uh, problem with these therapies. So first of all, the procedural complications are obviously there, which everybody fears is the tract hematomas, et cetera, the, the infection of these uh, lines, which sometimes have to stay in there for days on end, weeks on end, subsequent conversion to ventriculoperitoneal shunt, uh, which, which can then have their own associated morbidity, et cetera. In addition, immediately, the clogging of these EVD tips is not very uncommon in the ICU setting, and oftentimes you have to then go in and manually flush these EVDs to uh, break the debris at the EVD tip to ensure that the flow is continuing. 
sometimes malposition of these EVDs occur. These EVDs sometimes, you know, unfortunately migrate or they are sitting in the thick of the clot and just clog up pretty quick if you're not using specialty TPA in, in those settings where uh, you are sitting in the right place, but still there is no CSF drainage occurring, which then serves no purpose. Infection is obviously one of the other major uh, complications that we've been uh, facing, uh, particularly when we are using treatments such as uh, intraventricular TPA, which then does break the sterility of the system. No matter how careful you are, you certainly, uh, there's a risk of chance of introducing infection into the this closed system, which we oftentimes uh, experience. Interesting. And so you referenced that the patients can be there for a short period of time to a very long period of time. So in your experience, how long do these patients typically stay in the hospital? Is it just purely based off of their clinical presentation as they're coming in and how bad the actual event was, or are there some other factors involved? Right. So this is a very complicated question to answer. Quite honestly, you know, my observation has been that the way we are treating these interventricular hemorrhage is not at all based on uh, a very good objective uh, markers. A lot of time, the reason why we would choose to put an EVD in a patient is going to be determined on the fact that what is the GCS? And it's a very, very simple measure of clinical uh, assessment. But you see what the GCS of the patient is, even if, when they have interventricular hemorrhage, sometimes uh, the, the decision is, no, 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 if the patient is awake, falling, man, what's the point of clearing this, right? Or what's the mm-hmm. point of uh, putting the EVD in? And on the other hand, if the patient are fully comatose, uh, it's almost looking like a fatal bleed, and still we put the EVD in, and we try to do our best to continue to drain it. So there is no real objective criterion that have been established on when to put the EVD. And because of that, there is no uniformity in how long do the patients stay in the ICU in these settings. In a typical situation where there's a primary intracerebral hemorrhage with intraventricular extension, where they end up getting an EVD, if you're doing passive drainage, oftentimes this hospitalization is extended almost up to two weeks, sometimes three weeks time as well, because when you're doing passive drainage, uh, there's a number of things that the neurosurgeons uh, or neurocritical care folks would consider in trying to wean the EVD. And by wean the EVD, is it's a graduated approach where you keep raising the EVD so that only CSF flows in the EVD system when the pressure goes above a certain level to eventually clamping it. And those trials are sometimes not even taking place until the RBCs in the CSF have decreased below a certain threshold. That depends on each practice, but typically speaking, if it's below 10,000 RBCs, people start feeling better about you know, challenging the EVD. And then again, depending on the surgeons, depending on the neurointensivist, this wean itself can sometimes I've seen drag up to seven to 10 days. The longer the EVD stays in place, not only exposes patients to a number of complications, but also it would increase the chance of somebody getting a ventricular peritoneal shunt because it takes that much longer to clear that blood out. On the other hand, when we are using alteplase with these patients, the hospitalization, say, length of hospitalization is again not very uniform, and it's very hard to comment on that. It certainly has shown us that uh, the ventricles clear much faster. I don't think there's any objective data that I can quote right now where it shows that the hospitalization, length of hospitalization was decreased. But our pers- our own observation, our institutional observation is when we use TPA, the, uh, the length of stay in the ICU is certainly decreased uh, uh, somewhat. And uh, to, to expand on that a little bit more, I, I wanted to mention, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, information we learned from clear IVS trials, more than the primary endpoint, et cetera. I was uh, very interested to learn when I was reading the trial, 
if you look at the group that is benefiting from these interventions, there's a very particular uh, thing that caught my eye is with the intraventricular hemorrhage volume between, uh, I believe, 25 cc's and uh, 50 cc's. And that's something that really uh, is uh, worth exploring because uh, if you if you look at how we measure the hemorrhage in the ventricular space, there's no real good formula of that. We have a pretty decent software, pretty decent uh, clinical scale that we can measure the intracerebral hemorrhage volume in, but not with the case of interventricular. And I think that would be the direction that you can take in the future where you can actually uh, quantify these hemorrhages and see which hemorrhages, which, what volume of hemorrhage responds better than such treatment to objectively make decisions on which patients need EVD or not. And I think that, that may improve outcome in, in, in certain cases. So given that information, have you seen anything that's currently out in the market that may help with addressing some of these issues and bringing this from kind of a passive treatment to something that's a little bit more therapeutic? Yes, absolutely. Actually, we are uh, we're living in good time because a lot of new innovations are coming out. And uh, one such device that has been recently uh, released in the market is the uh, AeraFlow catheter uh, made by Eras. So this is a it is a very good device because uh, number one, it gives you a closed system of irrigation. The physiology of that is that you uh, put in a EVD into the ventricular system, which is then connected with this irrigation system which remains a closed system at all times. The only thing you're changing is the saline bag. And there's still studies ongoing that what is the volume of infusion that you're irrigating in the ventricle. The idea is that you inject some saline and you pull it right back. So that way, this continuous irrigation, first of all, keeps the EVD flow smooth so you don't run into this problem of in the middle of the night that the, the EVD is not working, the waveform is dampened, this thing happened, that thing happened, or the debris is occluding the lumen now, and then you have to go in manually flush it with saline once again, exposing the system to the external factor. The second thing this system does is it allows you an opportunity to actually infuse TPA into that saline bag and then uh, with that uh, method sort of continue with a continuous irrigation of TPA. And I think that's going to be very promising the future technology where you can clear out the interventricular hemorrhage uh, at a much greater speed and in a much more controlled fashion. Well, it's very interesting, Dr. Chaudhary. I just want to thank you for taking the time of your busy schedule today to discuss how treating, how you treat interventricular hemorrhage and a promising new innovative technology called Aeroflow that may help with these critical patients. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to continuing our conversation on this topic with you in the future on subsequent podcasts that we're going to do. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Eris Radio. Make sure you visit our website at eris.com where you can subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.